Welcome to Explore History's podcast on Victorian Britain. This podcast, titled Memories of Old Warlingham, A Window to Into Village Life in Victorian Times, is a reading from a journal written by an Arthur Burdell. The journal is handwritten and 85 pages in length. The author begins by recording his early days as a schoolboy, continues covering a wide range of subjects that were important to himself and to the development of the village. Morlingham is located in the county of Surrey, south of London, just a bit south of the modern city of Croydon. I believe this journal to be a particularly important piece of history as it provides us with a unique opportunity to look at rural life in Victorian Britain. Our perception of the Victorian age is often dominated by the images so familiar in works by Charles Dickens or the likes of Frederick Engels. Noisy factories belching out black smoke, impoverished workers living in crowded tenement built blocks with little in the way of sanitation or common decency. Maybe it's a more positive image of steam trains and great ships conquering land and sea, spreading British ideas and power around the globe. Here, Arthur Burdell provides us with something decidedly different. An intimate and very personal account of what life was like and how it was changing in the late 19th century. Poverty was rife, life difficult for many, yet there was much to be celebrated, the skills of different tradesmen, the hard work done by road workers and farmers and others, and above all, a strong sense of community. Overall, the author tells us a rich and detailed story that adds colour and life in a way that truly provides a reader, or listener in this case, with a window into village life in late Victorian Britain. So let's get started and hear what Arthur has to say. I well remember my first day at Warlingham School in 1876. Mr. Lawson was then the schoolmaster. Him I remember but little, only that he was very slack in discipline. The boys usually lounged about in the school while the registers were being called. Sometimes a group of boys would answer for everyone present. Mr. Clark came in 1879 or soon after, and he soon brought about a reformation. For instance, we all had to go to our desk at nine o'clock. Once registers were then called, and each scholar had to answer his or her own name, no other while the doors were closed. After that, the doors were opened for latecomers to enter. Then about 9.30, the registers were called for the latecomers, who were then marked with a black mark, and those absent ranked with an A. All those that were early received red marks. This was order brought out of chaos. Then he had all of us outside to drill, like soldiers on parade. Heads held up, eyes front, chest expanded, each equidistant. We were all proud to do this, especially so when guards from Caterham passed by, as they did at times, and seen us, pulled up to see us form boys and various other exercises. When guards from Caterham passed by, as they did at times, and seen us pulled up to see us form fours and various other exercises. Our worst trouble was the lack of proper heating, as we only had a small register stove to heat the whole school. It was nothing to see children crying with cold in wintertime. The schoolmaster fully realizes this difficulty, which he explained to Her Majesty's inspectors when they came to visit the school. Later, a tortoise stove was set up in the middle of the school, which relieved the situation somewhat. Even then he let us go out and run a distance in close formation, as well as march round the school in time with the rounds, which we sang with zeal. We had no accompaniment. The master, a splendid teacher of music, gave first and second troubles their notes from a tuning fork. And then at other times he taught us some music. So after a time we could sing all our music at sight. Consequently, we always got 
tip-top marks from the inspectors who came to examine the whole school individually on one day only each year. That was the day when we were all on our medal, for if we failed on that day, we did not get another of going up for a whole year. Our school was somewhat of a universal provider for all the parishes adjoining. They were the wards from Bothy Hill, who often came in a donkey cart, Kirby from Waddingham, Scots from Chelsham Court, to name a few. Several others from Waddingham, Chelsham, and Grundenstead, and all Whiteleaf. Golly, we were always fighting. Warlingham versus Whiteleafs. We're ever, reading, we're ever ready for a battle. We had pits with turves in summertime and snowballs in wintertime, as well as daily fights with fists, brought to a grand climax by a big fight between Ginger Brazier of Worthingham and Fred King from Whiteleaf. After school hours, which terminated by Brazier flooring King after a long battle, just as the master came on the scene. This accounts for the feud that always existed between Worthingham and Whiteleaf. On one occasion, we had a grand proper chase, all the boys joining in. A lad named Jupp, a former resident of Godston, was one of the hares. They laid the trail through Godston and Oxted so well that we never caught sight of them at all. But we had special enjoyment in our asides. First, we saw a man with a lighted lantern about to enter the famous stone quarries at Godstone. Our master made arrangement with this man for us all to go with him. I, being one of the smallest, was pushed back behind, so got no light to guide me. Consequently, I repeatedly bumped my head on the sides. After traveling a long distance, we came on a big chamber, and here saw a man hewing stone, stayed a time to watch him at his work. After leaving there, we traveled on until we came to the shafts of the nearby completed Oxted Tunnel of the LB and BCR. There we looked down and saw men working in water, with a hoist bringing up the chalk etc. In wintertime we often went sliding on Willie's Pitt's Pond at the bottom of the common, and here one of our schoolfellows, Frank Churchill, fell in and was drowned when he got on the ice with two others before it was sufficiently frozen. All the school went to his funeral. All the time I went to school we paid two a week for our tuition. Our schoolmaster had his house burgled soon after his arrival here from Dorsetshire, a most unusual thing in those days. We were keenly interested to see where the burglar stepped over the row hedge and damaged the window on the west side. Our old school bell was a record timekeeper. Mr. Clark saw to it that the school clock at the east end of the school was always correct, and we boys, who were lucky enough to rush to school and get the job of ringing the bell, saw to it that we started the bell going at 8.45 precisely. On one occasion, a lad named Graham had the bell chain break off up in the belfry, and nearly fell on his head, the chain attached to the bell rope falling with a crash at his feet. A day or two later, Mr. Clark was assailed by a gentleman, Mr. Mr. Tweedy, who lived at the nest, now called May's Place, who said, You made me miss my train the other morning when your bell did not ring, as I always timed myself by it. I was intrigued in those days by a notice fixed on the wall below the clock, saying, This is a public elementary school. I remember Mr. Clark telling us that it costs ten shillings a week to educate us. We paid two, and the government eight each week. We had a boy at our school who would do a trick, which was he could walk through Willie's Pond with all his clothes on and go into any deep part that we boys on the banks asked him to go. We would say, you are afraid to go here, Lefebvre, pointing to where the deepest spots were. But Lefebvre always won. He waded through all the obstacles and then went and sat in school in all his wet clothes, till one day the master found it out. 
the boy telling them about Lefebvre's escapades. That ended our entertainment at the pond. The election of the members of the school board was a red-letter day in Warlingham. You could give every member a vote if you wished to, or give one man as many votes as, you were, as there were members seeking election. This last was termed plimping. Usually all the prospective members in the early periods had named plumes. Mr. Churchill at the White Lion was dubbed Turge. Mr. Jarvis Tidcombe's Jarvis, Wheat Sheaf. Mr. Simmons Tainter, Whitewash. Mr. Brown who ran our threshing machines, Locomotive. Later came M. George Taylor of Hull. Later came M. George Taylor of Hullaloo Farm who catered for Sunday school treats, etc. Special trains ran into Martin Park, now Woldingham, stationed daily, bringing sometimes as many as 1,000 children. He created great fun with this practical appeal for membership. The verses were as follows. Now, Warlingham voters, come forth to the fight and send in the men that will do what is right. But perhaps you will say, I pray, who are you? Well, I'm simply G. Taylor of old Hullaloo. If you think you would like to elect me as one, whatever I can do for your good shall be done. For all above board is the motto right through, if Taylor who lives at old Hullaloo. There's Wilson, my friend. He's a very good man. He says what he means and to do what he can. But if you are puzzled, what's right? Thing to do, well then vote for G. Taylor of old Hallelujah. There's my namesake who lives up there at the nest. Like me, he put forth his name with the rest. But should you be puzzled, what's right thing to do? Why then plump for G. Taylor of old Hallelujah. The chief industry here in my boyhood days was farming, as all the district was truly rural, and West Hall was one of the chief farms. The only building there at that time was the old farmhouse, now greatly enlarged, with outbuildings and one cottage. The old wagon lodge still stands near the entrance. Its front was filled in many years ago, and the old pond at the back filled in also. It was a rare joy to see all the farming operations here in the part, as nearly everyone took pleasure in carrying out their respective works in all phases of the work. The plowman's joy was to drive a straight and rakish furrow that was to leave each furrow turned lane at a rakish angle uh, on its fellow, so that the following harrows would get a proper grip and pulverize the soil ready for sowing. Thus came one sowing, naturally done in the old primitive style. The sacks of corn were spaced out along the headlands. Thus the sower, with his seedlings slung in front of him, loaded up from the sacks, strode over hill and dale, scattered broadcast the precious grain with hands, eyes and legs in unison. Sowing a piece four or five yards in width as he traverses straight from one wand to another as he crosses the field to and fro. Such skill does he show that he finishes up with scarcely a handful left after sowing, as in wheat, two and a half to three bushels to the acre. Then all is harrowed in and finished by night, and one could then look back on this grand work as something accomplished, something done. Then it's said that farming is unskilled work. Do you think you could sow broadcast so many bushels to the acre with only your eyes, hands, and sense of touch as measures? as that old man of the past in Warlington used to do so happily? Wouldn't you have been eager to go back, say three weeks later, to see the corn come up with a delightful evenness, not a miss anywhere in its trembling straight rows, so fresh and green amid the rich brown soil? Later came the rolling of, the, of this corn and meadows. Isn't it delightful to gaze upon these attractive parcels left behind the roll? As the corn leans to and fro, you in more or less straight lines as you traverse the fields, trying your hardest to keep a perfect straight line. Last of all came the harvest, 
Daily we watched the ripening corn. Then came the day. Out went men in pairs with bagging hooks to tail from sunrise to sunset, to cut, tie, and stook their respective area, daily until all was in stooks. Some of the best men could cut three-quarter acre a day, where the corn was not knocked flat by wind and rain. The corn usually stood nine or ten days after being cut. Then stack bottoms were prepared. We got out and, and, and away we all went for the corn. It was surprising how each man excelled at his respective job. Usually the drivers pitched the corn. Then the good loader took the back of the wagon, where the short ladder stuck out straight behind. He consequently had to watch the wheel marks for a guide as to his load being askew or not. The novice in front had an upright ladder to guide him, as his part was easy. Outside layers are laid first. Then the middle ties all in. A load well loaded and neat in appearance is praised on the field by the loader's mates. I have been a loader myself. Then the stacker takes his place. He is the general and a great man. All at the stacker under his command. A well-built stack singles out the best man on the farm. The symmetry of a well-built stack always appeals to me. It is indeed a work of art, as so much has to be allowed for in its construction. The bottom to take just the, just the field of corn and no remainder. The sloping sides to turn the wet. The roof sloped and filled in correctly to make good reception for the thatching. And all beautifully symmetrical and upright at the finish. To such a joy to the thatcher to tackle such a roof as this. For a roof well filled, filled in with all the sheaves sloping outward is really half thatched. A thatcher can then weave in each respective layer up the roof in a manner that is pleasing to the eye, as well as being perfect in design. If the corn and straw was fetching a good price, oft times the corn was hauled straight to the thresher. This saved the necessity of stacking and thatching. At Worthingham we had two threshing machines which did duty for all the farmers from miles around, and usually they were employed the whole time. There were two gangs of men who did this special work. They laid rough in the barns and sheds, as did other men and women who came to work far and near many from Ireland, in the fields in the summer. These men used to interest me in that they all had nicknames. I saw one called Old Bacon, laying dying in, on straw with no one to attend him in any way for several days. It was awful to see a man end up like this. At last he was removed to the infirmary and died next day. I've had talks with lots of them. Some could talk on religion for hours. They knew such a lot about the Bible. The Irish, one and all, had California as their Mecca. They even told me that they were going to California one day. Yet we were all a happy party on the farms. We worked like Trojans and joked and sang. I was very small as I was short of food for years until I reached 18. Then I received 10 shilling a week, which my brother and I had to live on. No pocket money, papers, or books for me. I laugh now over my ignorance as I heard one man say to another, What are your politics? I never heard the word politics before in my life. The men and women, too, were dressed in rags. I was not much better. All you had was what you stood upright in. Consequently, if you got wet through, you dried your clothes on you. Can you imagine anyone singing under such conditions as this? Well, I did. I had a good treble voice until I was 18. I sang my old school songs and hymns, keeping time with the milking as I milked the cows into the pail. Really, those days were happy days. I still look back on them with pleasure. Another type of men we had here were the woodcutters and handle makers. The underwood of all our woods was cut every eight or nine years, the larger woods being done in sections. As soon as the leaf was off, woodcutting started. 
Blocks were erected and distance pieces fixed ready for the conversion of the underwood, which was laid near in a systematic way ready for conversion. It was fine to watch the woodsman's eye each stick over as he grasped it, then place it against the distance piece suited to its conversion and deftly cut off the required length, which was always terminated on the block. Thus he dealt with beam sticks, heathers, flower sticks, and the selection had to be made for pea sticks, props, brooms, etc., and birch being selected for the brooms. In wintertime, the woodsman usually had a fire made from bushes and oddments which had to be cleared and abounded in the woodland. At night he could be seen winding his way homeward with a bundle of dead hazel sticks neatly bound and a stake pushed in at a, in at a suitable place, so as he could carry the bundle comfortably on his way home. The hurdle makers here were fewer. Old Mr. Chamberlain was the best one. He could split up and use rougher wood than any of the others. To see him at work was a real joy. He was a wonderful man that he would talk away to you, but never did he seize a moment from work. To see him deftly split a hazel rod was ripping. He could get the feel of the wood to a nicety. He would cut in sideways at one cut, then deftly turn the bill sideways and work it along, first right, then left, splitting the rod with the greatest of ease that one could think it was something akin to tallow. Then to see him weave in these split rods between the spanned uprights, and it was unbelievable, it branded him truly as a master of his job. There was but one broom maker. He used to make them in stocks as he had a shed to work in wet weather. But about dinner time in fine weather, he would go to the local, and there he would stop all the rest of the day. In fact, broomy like the little drop. He too was master of his job. He made us laugh one day when he said, I'm not going to work in fine weather when I can earn all I want by working in wet weather. Sheep shearing day was a grand day in our farm life. The sheep were prepared for the ordeal a week or so before by being taken to the wash ponds near Chelsham Court to be cleaned. It is a trying ordeal for the sheep to go through, as at this time their fleece is so very long and thick, so that after immersion some could not walk on account of the large amount of water held up in their fleece. They were steered to the shallow side with a pole after having part wrung out by the washer's hands. Mostly all the woodcutters became our sheep shears. The gang booked up weeks ahead with the farmers in summertime. Then, as the number of each flock was known, they made the arrangement to finish the flock each day, whatever its size. Mr. John Ward, who employed me as a shepherd, had the heaviest used. It highly amused me to see one of the strongest shears take two or three minutes to put one hefty Hampshire down you on her back. I guess he never forgot that one. Yet had he known what I learned later in regard to the anatomy of a sheep, he could have thrown the ewe with the minimum of effort. These shears had to work like Trojans all day. They took pride in their work, in closeness of cutting with the shears, without cutting the sheep. Should a snip be made, a little wood ash was rubbed over the cuts. We were glad when all of our sheep were washed and shorn, because that ended the ravages of the dreaded blowfly, which lays its eggs in the greasy wool. Before you know where you are, your sheep are alive with maggots, which I have seen eat into sheep's flesh. A most horrible sight of seething jaws and maggots. Usually, humid days are the worst. Tis then these flies are busy. A keen shepherd detects them and applies certain remedies for their destruction. But he cannot detect all. When the maggots are in evidence, the sheep in its agony to rid itself of these pests gnaws itself, and that gives the maggots their chance of entering the flesh. But a keen shepherd sees this action at once, 
Turpentine can be used in emergency, but it has the effect of fetching off the wool also. Gone now are all the woodcutters and sheep shears. I have only the memory of the winding of the fleece and the storage finally into huge canvas pockets to be sent off to market. In regard to the sheep washing, one might ask, why didn't you wash your sheep at home? We cannot do this because there was no suitable water available. As most of the ponds were used for domestic supply and the watering of cattle. In addition, large numbers of cattle passed through each week from Kent to Croydon Market. There were also horses in numbers, as well as tractor engines. All had water from these ponds. We had no wells here, only shallow tanks, which often ran dry during prolonged drought. Then we had to go to the more cleanly ponds, a long distance off times, with a pair of buckets and a hoop to keep the buckets away from your legs as you walked, to fetch the necessary water for drinking, etc. A pair of posts were erected with a cross piece out in the pond, and a plank laid down the bank, resting on and fixed to the cross piece. You walked along this plank and filled one bucket at a time from what you termed, termed the dipping pole. This was always free from weeds and beautifully clear. You walked along this plank and filled one bucket at a time from what was termed the dipping hole. This was always free from weeds and beautifully clear. We were never worried about microbes or bacilli in those days. They were non-existent as far as we were concerned. You boiled your water before you drank it. I've been asked, no, never, I have replied. We were doubtless all immune from the ravages of bacteria, for no one was ever ill from drinking the water. On some occasions we went as far as the dew pond on no hill and brought home a supply with a barrel on wheels by hand. The more cleanly ponds were full of fish, chiefly golden carp. I've had many thrashings for going fishing as my mother was scared in regard to my going near a pond at all. She had her brother, a boy of ten, drowned in Harrow Pond by his falling into the dipping hole when sliding on the pond in wintertime. My fishing outfit was unique. I used to cut a long stick out of a hedgerow for a rod, then for a hook, I inserted the eye of a needle end on in a cork, then held the cork in a pair of pincers and put the pointed end of the needle into the fire until red hot. Then I could bend it round like a hook and with skillful taps with a hammer. Then with a handful of flour with a wee bit of sugar added, I made some paste. Then with my bent needle fixed below a cork for a float and thence on with the string to my rod, I set out with a jam jar for a krill to catch my fish at either Willie's Pit, Harrow, Forge, Mulberry, or Nose Hill Ponds. All were excellent ones for fishing. I was extremely lucky by being employed by one of the most interesting men in Worlingham. He used to employ the greater part of the men in Worlingham, which was Mr. John Ward, a splendid farmer. I, as well as being in partnership with his brother, Mr. Jack Ward, as the chief builders for miles around, John was a leader in most things, as he knew to too much regarding the customs and rites, as well as the ancient history of our parish. Me he found an interesting listener. He told me much, which has served me in good stead at times, a good bit round the church, including the little wood on the south side of the church. When he sold the underwood there for the last time, he came straight to me and told me about it, saying, I have sold the underwood in church shaw for ten pounds. I am having ten hurdles and stakes instead of money, and they are to include making the hedge round the outside. There was then no road across Church Meadow, only a path to the church. A good hedge was essential as we turned our cows out into this meadow. There was a field gate at the end nearest the main road, which was used for the cattle and wagons to pass through into the meadow, and a smaller gate for coffins by bearers to pass through on the way to church, 
Practically all funerals were walking funerals in those days. The coffins were carried by six or eight bears, taking turns. Both these gates were kept locked. A small rising gate by the side of the smaller gates gave us all access to the path to and from the church. At the church end was another field gate for cattle and people to pass through. To present vehicles getting through, John had a, a post created so that this big gate could only be opened halfway. He told me the history of the old chapel, which they then used as a carpenter's shop and a storage for corn. This was originally used as a chapel with the Sunday school, held in a small room at the back until the new chapel was built by his father, Mr. Richard Ward. He also stated that two persons were buried under the floor of the old chapel. One was brought from Chenerill's farm in a rude state and buried in that manner. One thing he was eager to explain was the taking in of the old commons, which reached from the old school about the vicarage to Chelsham. The chief joy of Warlingham in those days was cricket, and the cricket pitch was in what is now known as Warren Park. This was all enclosed, and a new recreation ground allotted to the parish in the triangular piece in front of the vicarage. When the Education Act came into being, the top part of the triangle was taken by the government, and a new school and house erected on it. Mr. Ward being the builder. He told me that they found out later that this seizure was not legally right, and steps had been taken to prevent any encroachment of any kind on this recreation ground in the future. I was interested when he told me that he was going to approach the owners of the public houses to have their signs moved from the common land back onto their own property. Two did so, but the third did not. He said, we have arranged to deal with this one. Should it have to be removed for a new one to go up in its place, we shall be there and placing our posts on the site, claiming on behalf of the parish of Worlingham. Another time he came and told me that he was going to make a new road across the village green. There was only two roads then bordering it, out of the three which now complete this triangle. The road he was going to make was from Mr. Graham's shop to the angle near the bank, where it meets the main road. Hitherto it had, in wet weather, been nothing but a quagmire across the green at this spot. He said, I'm going to alter this and make a decent road of it. I'm going to put two men to dig it out. We shall get a deal of flints, and we can dig more out further on the green there. Another track has been in all, enough to do the job as far as flints are concerned. I've interviewed the Lord of the Manor. He has agreed to give us all the gravel we want for nothing. I'm going to fix down all the local contractors to cart the gravel from Worms Heath free. I shall apportion the number of loads each one has to bring according to the number of houses and carts they own, the number of horses and carts they own. I was highly amused to see him later when a contractor passed by, rush out and say, look here, we're all doing our bit to this road. You'll have to cart so many loads for nothing from Worms Heath, he fixing the number. And they all did it without, except one. This contractor lived in an adjoining village and his two sons did his hauling. They flatly refused to cart any because of his incident. And they flatly refused to cart any because of this incident when Queen Victoria's first jubilee was celebrated in 1887. Worlingham clubbed together and gave a tea at the old school. These two lads crept in, but lynx-eyed John saw them and yanked them out, and this was how they got even with them. He told me that the father said, There are the horses and carts, Mr. Ward, at your disposal. You can find drivers. The roadmen at that time used to trim the roadside hedges, but I noticed that they always omitted to trim the hedge from the vicarage pond to a break in the hedge near to the old school. So I asked Mr. Ward the reason why this was omitted. 
He replied that this ground had been seized from the common, and that a cottage stood there at one time. The parish considered that it was wrong for it to be annexed to the Parsons Meadows, as the Glebeland boundary was by the lines of the trees which are still standing some distance back. Mr. Ward amused me by stating an amusing incident regarding his old plowman's son, who we all knew as Darkie Bradford. John said, I christened him that. I threw a bucket of water over him and said, Now your name is Darkie. He used to be a mark on me too, for if I went to see the flower show or Odd Fellow's fate at night after leave off time at 7.30, he would be there too, and, and at 9 o'clock he would say, Now there, Arthur, off you go, or you'll be behind in the morning. I had to be there at 5.30, and I was never ready to get up. I had two nags, about 40 sheep and their lambs, 30 pigs, 9 cows and heifers to look after. I've been wet through day after day as I had only two hours to pitch the folds for the sheep. I remember once working in a torrential downpour in my shirt sleeves as I was so wet through and my overcoat and coat impeded my progress. Usually, I dried my clothes on me. Well, that concludes episode one of Memories of Old Warlingham, a window into village life in Victorian times. Please join us again soon for episode two.